because I think for so long, the church thought the world needed us. Like, how can you be a good person without us? And the truth was like, sometimes they were better than us. <laughs> and we have a lot to learn from them. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insider experience with that subject. And if you're new, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. And our guest today is Sarah Heath. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm glad we got to connect. Thanks for saying yes. Uh, of course, of course. So Sarah, I am familiar with your work, but some of our listeners might not be. So give us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and some of the work you do. Sure, yeah. So I am the Reverend Sarah Heath. I am a United Methodist elder, uh, which is just our way of saying lead pastor. Um, and up until July, I was a pastor in a local church. Uh, I was a local church pastor for 16 years, um, came straight out of seminary and was a youth and college pastor. Then I was a preaching pastor. And then most recently for the last five years, I did a um, kind of a rebuild, reconstruct uh, situation where we flipped a community. So there was a church that had a hundred year old building in the heart of an amazing area called Costa Mesa, California. And they were 17 to 27 elderly folks and most beautiful building you've ever seen, uh, great hearts, but just couldn't make a go of it. And so I came in there in 2016, I think. Uh, and for the last five years have spent, uh, most of my waking hours, uh, thinking through and working through how do you, um, kind of make space for folks. And so we grew, uh, quite quickly and became really involved in the city and, um, they continue on and doing great, uh, very inclusive, uh, space for sure. Um, so that's a lot of my work is helping folks think through how do we make spaces for people who are different than us, as well as those who are the same. And, uh, a lot of the folks in our community were folks who have gone through deconstruction. Uh, I make a joke that, Every Sunday I was preaching to at least six former pastors. Um, and so just a lot of that work over the last uh, couple of years has really been for me about making spaces. I'm also a, a designer, so I enjoy um, thinking through space for folks um, and also do some podcasting with a group called the Irreverent Media Group. So that's a little bit about me I'm currently on, I guess we'll call it like almost like a sabbatical, but I, in July, decided um, just really felt that I wanted to expand my work, but I needed to pause and sort of get really, uh, yeah, get really quiet in some ways. And so um, through an incredible story, I ended up with a 27 foot Airstream. Um, and so I have an Airstream here in Bend, Oregon, where I have been spending the last two months trying to figure out how to flip that. So it's a 1973 overlander. And, um, I'm learning all kinds of things like riveting and, um, you know, I call it trailer theology. Like I'm learning how to look at one part of a project instead of the totality of it. So when people say like, what do you do right now? My joke is that I'm currently retired, but I am <laughs> starting back up doing consulting with churches and whatnot in the fall, um, under the making spaces title. So one of my podcasts is called making spaces. It's fantastic, and it sets up so much of some of the ground I want to cover today. <laughs> sure, um, and and going in pieces, you know, going back to some of your 
your introduction. How did you get started as a pastor? Did you grow up in church? Were you always interested in that? Or was that something that you came to later? Yeah, great question. Uh, So I... I grew up in Canada. Um, my mom's British, my dad's Canadian, and I grew up an hour and a half north of Toronto. And I grew up um, very much. Um, my parents were Christians, but we are just our our culture around Christianity is very different, and it, particularly in the '80s and '90s when I was growing up, um, very much kind of like it's your own thing. Um, and when I was around 13 years old, I had a fantastic pastor and she, uh, which I love saying she, cause I think that shocks so many people still, which is hysterical to me. Um, she kind of said to us, if you go through confirmation, which is the process that most churches that baptize infants do so that there's a public and personal confession of faith. She said at 13 said to us, you can choose this faith as your own. Um, and if your parents ever, you know, kind of want to force you to go to church after this point, um, we, you know, I'll step in because that's not, uh, this faith is now yours. And so, um, I really kind of put that on a back burner. Like I had chosen my faith and I, I was doing that kind of stuff, but I never really understood myself as a leader. Um, but just was one of those kids that always ended up, some would call it bossy. Um, I wasn't actually super bossy cause I always wanted to fit in, but I definitely had that, like, how can I gather everyone and get them moving in the same direction? So I worked at a summer camp. Um, and even after moving, so when I was 14, we moved to Mississippi. Um, that's quite and so- a difference. Yeah, super different. Um, I grew up in a tiny town in Canada. Then I moved to Mississippi, uh, where my parents live now, which they live in an area called Hattiesburg, which is where the University of Southern Mississippi is. It's actually quite a diverse area for the state, um, but it was still moving to the Bible Belt. And so when I moved, uh, I was still working at a Christian summer camp in Canada and kind of learning to see myself as a leader, but never thinking of myself as leading in a church. So I always say like, I grew up trying to be like, once I was about 14 and moved to the States, I really wanted to be like a good American, which felt like to be a good American, you had to be a good Christian, whatever either of those mean. Um, And so I just really wanted to fit in, I think was a, you know, was a, was a part of it. And so got really involved in my high school youth group, mostly probably because of a cute boy I was dating. Um, and I just kind of started, that became a place that I really felt like I fit in, um, in some ways. And there was some belonging there for me. And so when I went to college, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I actually have an undergrad in biology and psychology because I was studying, my fallback was to be a doctor, which feels like the weirdest fallback, you know, that seems like a lot of work. Like most people are like, I was, you know, I did acting and all that as well, but um, got all the stuff so that I could go to medical school, but it just didn't feel like that was going to fulfill me. And in the midst of that, noticed that I was spending most of my time volunteering with a youth group. And I reluctantly on a beach retreat said to one of my um, mentors, Hey, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. And she said, Whew, thank God the rest of us have known this for a long time, but I wasn't ready to hear that. I mean, that's kind of my story over and over again, where everyone around me is going, Hey, you should do this thing. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Uh, so I ended up applying to one seminary at the time. It was really hard to get into, which was Duke. And, um, just cause I really respected a bunch of the folks I knew from there. Um, but I didn't know anything about the ministry world. And I also didn't realize all the walls. So I like bebopped and Mississippi into my Baptist student union. Cause I was part of the Baptist student union as well as the Wesley foundation, as well as my sorority. If you're hearing like a, 
I, I really like to be involved. Um, and so I, I went in there, I was like, I got into seminary. And they were like, there was just like silence. They were not excited about that. So yeah, I went to seminary and really just thought I was going to be a college pastor, youth pastor for the rest of my life. Cause the idea that you could just play with people, um, for a job seemed great. We all know it's more than that. Uh, and then again, just people kept, uh, saying, Hey, you know, we really love when you preach. Could you, you know, you've got all the credentials. Why don't you actually get ordained? Which is not something our denomination normally does. Uh, it's not as invitational as some. So ended up sort of falling into it in a weird way. And then, um, I'm a three on the Enneagram. If you are guys are all part of the cult. Um, and so it's just like, okay, I'm just going to put it into drive and go. And so, yeah, that's my very long-winded. Yeah, that's how I became the lead pastor of a congregation. <laughs> now, obviously, along the way, there's not complete smooth sailing. Oh, uh, God, no. Let me ask you this specifically. Did you ever have any challenges specifically around gender inequality? Oh, Oh, it's, just, it's a softball, just, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's taken me a long time. Um, you know, part of my story for sure. It, by the way, it's so fun to be on the other side of podcasts. I'm like, wait, I'm talking a lot. Um, I'm, I like asking <laughs> questions. This is fun. Um, I, I think the thing that I'm just processing now as I'm kind of understanding what's going on, even in my own body and trying to understand why I'm feeling almost like my central nervous system is in high alert all the time. And what you don't realize is that it's not, there are big moments um, and I'll share one of those for sure. But I think overall, just being a female leader has certain um, things that nobody talks about. And even the most um, progressive and loving people don't realize um, that they're engaging in maybe like a microaggression or even like, you know, um, my brother and I once had a conversation where I realized I was so defensive. Um, my brother's someone who always like checks data and facts and he just is like, you know, he's a very analytical person. And I, my feelings were being hurt by that a lot because he would check everything I said. And what I realized is like, as a female leader, I spend most of my, like most of the things I say don't, uh, aren't just taken at face value. Um, there is always a little bit of like, oh, now dear kind of stuff. Um, so there was that for sure. Um, there was a, particularly cause I look even younger than I am. And so people, you know, and I'm not married. And so for whatever reason within the Christian culture, that then means that I'm, um, a little more naive, you know, most people who have 16 years of ministry experience and have actually grown every community they've served would have a different sort of, uh, sort of gravitas around them. Whereas I feel like I was always defending myself um, or trying to legitimize myself. And um, I think the worst one, and it's something I've processed, um, you know, uh, was I had a, a someone who is higher up in our church um, call me in and say that the way that I look is dangerous and that no woman would trust me with their husband or um, boyfriend. And, um, that more people that I was a really profound speaker. It was one of those like poop sandwiches yeah. where they said really like, you're one of the most profound speakers I've ever heard. Um, but also you need to dress more and more professional because 
no one will trust you because your body, and they use these words, your body is dangerous. Um, and so that was a really toxic soup because I, you know, I, of course had that like shame spiral for a little while. Like, Ooh, she actually said, uh, more people pay attention to your hemline than the words coming out of your mouth. And, um, I'm not, you know, I'm a a really secure individual. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And it was scary because this is someone that is very highly recognized for their justice work. Um, Ah. and so women are often, uh, those of us who embody the female, um, uh, body or identity, we're often worse to each other um, because of this mindset of scarcity and almost toxic masculinity that says there's only room for so many women who do this work. I mean, it's a lie, right? There's always more room, but there's only this much room. And so we all need to sort of like make sure that we're putting everybody in their place because we've all learned that, um, you know, marketing tells us there's only so much room. So you got to make sure you're the person taking up that space. And so I think for her, um, she saw some talent in me, but wanted to make sure that I did it in the same way that she did it. Um, her, I think it was a weird protective. I'm going to give it that, uh, kind of thing. But I think that was, you know, I almost quit, um, that afternoon. Uh, but I sat with some of my male friends who are all about the same, you know, age. We all were kind of the younger up and coming clergy. And all of them said, no one has ever said a thing about the way I dress. And it was a moment where I felt like, uh, this weird, like, am I over, like, what am I doing? And even if I was, is that problematic? It was just the very, you know, I lived like a nun. And so it just felt <laughs> so, so hurtful. Um, and basically I, I had shame about who my, my, like what my body is and who I am. And, um, I think there, there's still so much work for us to be done around, um, some of the things even we say to children in youth group and, you know, the fact that women have to wear t-shirts and shorts, well, guys, you know, to the pool, because lest a lustful eye fall upon them, instead of talking about like, why do we think we can own other people's bodies? Instead, we're like policing the body instead of the thought. Um, and even policing the thought instead of like, what does that mean? And so, yeah, I think it's been a weird journey towards, I think I'm always, I've always had to, um, kind of be aware that, um, that it people, it does take people a little while longer to accept me and the work that I've done. So, so then when did you decide to finally step away? What was, what was like the, the pivotal moment to say, okay, I've done what I was supposed to do. You know, um, for me, again, I, I joke about it, but I really think I'm so, uh, in some ways type A, um, and in other ways, uh, I just respond to what I feel like are invitations, um, like divine invitations to do other things. And, um, I loved the last church I worked at. I loved the work we did together. Um, you know, a, a lot, I don't take for granted that I got to work with very tender and fragile folks who have, you know, for many of them, our church was the last church they were ever going to try. And I don't think everyone has to be in church, but I think that's a beautiful thing where people are finding community. Um, and I realized that I was starting to feel a deep sense of resentment um, with folks. Cause I, you know, you just, you're pushing volunteers all the time and I work so hard to not be another damaging force. Um, 
but at the same time, it's very hard to do work with people who have spiritual trauma um, because you have to sort of gather together, but there's always, you don't know what, um, what action you're going to do that going to activate trauma. And you can be as gentle as you want to be. And you don't know when your trauma is running into other people's trauma. And I had just done the work for so long. And I felt also this, this larger call to kind of be with other communities that were trying to do this work. And, and I also realized my own spiritual practices had really fallen. Um, and I, and, and I don't use the term like fallen, like, oh, I'm really super concerned about, you know, our God and I connected, I think, but there was the sense of like, everything I'm doing feels performative right now. And what would it mean to look like to just be a person for a little while? And um, how can I support other leaders who are in the process of trying to open up their community? How can I, um, yeah, how can I help people even think through their spaces? And the truth was, I, I recognized too, I'd be spending like eight hours redoing a table and finding such joy in that. And um, having a really tough time going to another budget meeting, um, where I felt, okay, what, what would it look like to lean into the things that are just me naturally as someone who's more artistic? And, um, and so I, I just felt like, okay, I got to slow this thing down, um, so that I can kind of listen to, listen to the voice of invitation again. And so all of this stuff fell into place where I was able to take, um, this time and then our Bishop, uh, was gracious enough to offer the opportunity for me to be considered an extension ministry. So like, that's great. So they still are willing to own me, even if I'm not a, a local preaching pastor. Um, and I think, yeah, I think once you feel that disconnect from the reason you started in the first place. So like, I always have loved people and I wasn't loving people. Um, I mean, outwardly, sure. There was a lot of smiles and yeah, that's great. And inwardly, I'm like, just do the thing. Um, and I think I, I wanted to return to myself and I think, um, I wanted to feel that creative spark again. I love writing sermons. I love speaking at events. Um, those to me are my, uh, my greatest giftings, creating systems, not my greatest gifting. <laughs> I'm working on budget stuff not my greatest gifting. I can do it, but if I do it, it's at the expense of what I think is my divine spark. So I kind of had been having those conversations for a lot of time. Uh, and I think it was just enough friends saying like, Sarah, you know, if you step out, you're going to be okay. And you're probably going to encourage other people um, even more so. And it was true. When I told my leadership team, they were like, this is, uh, we hate it. We hate losing you, but we also feel like you're inviting us to rest as well. And what does it look like to take care of ourselves as well as those around us? So yeah, it, it kind of, the funny thing is it happened right before, cause I was doing so many speaking events in 2019 as well as running a local church. So I was working seven days a week. Um, cause I would fly to events, speak at events and then be back at my church. And, um, it was so much, right. Like just so much. And, uh, then I like had the conversation with some of my bosses. Um, and there was actually a potential of a TV show. And I was like, guys, I can't do all of this and run a local church. And, uh, then the pandemic hit and I, had, <laughs> so I feel like, and then it slowed you down. Yeah. We just put our heads down. Right. And started, I just had to get really localized and care for my local church, but I still knew in the back of my head that, um, I was working towards 
uh, figuring out who was going to step in for me. But it was hard, right? Like you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're thinking, I'm going to leave a job. What am I doing? Um, so yeah, again, very wordy answer to your question, but I hope it's helpful. And you had mentioned that you're involved with irreverent media, and it's got this amazing tagline that I love that says, the journey from deconstruction to rediscovery. Yeah. Can you unpack some of how you got sure. involved with that, but also like, what does that tagline mean for sure. you? And and like, I, I see it within your story, but I'd love for you to kind of speak to it. Yeah, so I, um, I, one of my best friends is the Kevin Garcia. Uh, Kevin, <laughs> I just like to say the, cause that's their tag on everything, but Kevin Garcia uh, and I met years ago when I was speaking at Wild Goose event and um, first person to ever tell me they were gonna be my friend and then actually be one of my best friends in the whole wide world. Um, and they, if you don't know who they are, they are a, a non-binary LGBTQIA advocate, just uh, incredible person who grew up like being a missionary and all that sort of stuff. And so Kevin and I's work has always sort of been parallel in some ways. Um, Kevin has been such a gracious part of my life as, so I'm a cisgender heterosexual white woman. And so um, the gifting of friends to come alongside who uh, that's not their journey or story and the space that they allow me um, is just, you know, otherworldly. And so I trust Kevin implicitly when they say, here's someone that I, I want you to know. And so uh, Kevin introduced me to Blake Chastain, who does Exvangelical. Um, and Blake one day said, hey, I really want to do a podcast group. And at the time, um, I had been running, I'd been doing the Making Spaces podcast. Um, and I had also done a podcast called Sonderlust years ago, which is a super fun um, year long journey of me actually kind of, if you want to hear the in-depth of how I left my job, that's the one um, kind of all these challenges that my friends were asking me to do to love my life. And Blake had listened to that. And he knew that Kevin and I were about to launch our podcast called your favorite ants. Cause everyone treats Kevin and I like their favorite internet ants. Like the questions we get are everything from like skincare to the deepest theology you've ever heard. So we joke around that we're your favorite aunts and we get a little tipsy at a bar and then we tell you our opinions on things. Um, and so uh, Blake approached us and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Uh, I want us to gather together because it's really hard to build momentum around um, spiritual spaces of deconstruction. I don't know if you would appreciate, I'm sure that you understand, right? We don't fit into the mold of we're not, you know, none of our podcasts fit into like the Christian uh, labels and none of our podcasts fit into the like, you know, just meditation labels. None of our pod, we're kind of this gray in between and marketing and anything that would propel our podcast into the ears of folks who, who could use it. Um, it's really hard to break through that. And so Blake said, Hey, what if we just gathered friends and people that we know that are doing this work and so uh, Tori Glass, who uh, does white, uh, white people homework, uh, and uh, also Adrian and Justin, who do, uh, they do uh, Dirty Rotten Church Kids. Um, we all just started, uh, Justin Gentry, we all just started talking and we realized like we wanted to um, create this um, kind of gathering of people who, so no one's reinventing the wheel. Uh, so we make more sense to folks. 
as far as saying like, hey, if you enjoyed this, this would might be another thing. So we can amplify voices of smaller podcasts that are, maybe are um, people of color or, um, you know, those coming from the LGBTQIA community, kind of like, how can we be a thing, but we understand too, that we're all in a different place and space. And so um, a reverend podcast came out of uh, a conversation we were having um, this group of people were like, well, what are we going to call it? And um, the word irreverent gets thrown around because I'm a reverend a lot. Um, and so uh, we just, just, it came out of that. It was like out of all of us laughing and I love naming things. Like I'm like a, a total, uh, I just think it's fun to come up with names for things and they often stick, which is so fun. Um, and so uh, yeah, we came up with that name. And then we thought like, how are people going to know what we're about? Because we're all in different stages. Like some folks are totally in the, like, I left all of that, but spiritual practices still matter to me. Some folks within our podcast group are, are working from within the Christian framework. Um, some people are, you know, so we were talking about how the deconstruction for me is such a weird word because people don't realize there's a difference between deconstruction and demolition. Um, Demolition is what a lot of people think they're experiencing, right? Well, you just get rid of everything. Everything's tossed out. Everything's thrown out. Nothing was good and nothing can be held on to. Whereas deconstruction is this opportunity to take things apart, look at it, see if anything is worth rebuilding with, right? So I tend to like to restore and flip things like literally and figuratively. <laughs> and so um, what, what was a value, and offering the space for wherever people are on that spectrum and that journey. We're not asking our, we don't have outcomes that we necessarily need you to get to, but we sure as hell would like to walk with you as you do it. Um, and we're all in different places and how can we make space for people for wherever they are in it and honor the fact that like, yeah, some of us are a little bit in a different spot than you. And maybe we've got words to offer that are helpful as you go through this, that will help you maintain um, sanity and help you feel connected to yourself and others, even if the entire framework with which you used to look at the world has shifted. Um, and so that's kind of where the tagline came from too, because we didn't, we, we knew that we needed to leave it open enough because again, we've got like justice podcasts, we've got all these things, but it all comes from the framework of people who grew up or chose for themselves a Christian framework and now are seeing that framework differently. Someone within the church like yourself, how does the church better equip people to go on that needed journey of deconstruction without providing them what they need to rediscover? Yeah, I think that's kind of where we're at, right? So um, I I recently talked to someone who was like, yeah, I feel like I go to the, these things and they're like, okay, questions are great, but also like everyone can question, but I just need you to come out on this end. Like I... I need to not surrender the outcome. I need you to have this outcome. So you're welcome to question as long as you come over here, <laughs> right? And I think churches, you have to understand our system, and I do mean systems, our church systems have an outcome that we want, which is maintenance. We want to uh, continue to have our our places, right? Our spaces, our gatherings. And so it's very hard and scary for any leader to say, I am not invested in you thinking you have to be invested in this, right? Um, and I think people who came out of black and white systems often spend some time in the gray and then they're looking for black and white again. And the the tough part is 
there, there isn't, there's, there's just more gray. (laughs) And when you've been dealing in absolutes for so long, uh, a church leader has a really tough time admitting that they themselves are not even sure um, that we're just sort of doing this thing together. And even if you think about, um, think about the way a, a typical church is framed, right? So all the church, all the chairs are facing one person in the front often, right? And that kind of indicates like there is a keeper of the knowledge in the room and it's the person in the front, right? So when you start reorienting, like, so for all of us, all I put casters on my pews. So my whole church started to face each other because I think we're fellow journeyers. I just happened to be the one who got to do a graduate degree in theology. That doesn't mean that I necessarily am the keeper of the knowledge. And because of this movement that we call in culture that's happened called the death of the expert, because of Google, because of, um, by the way, I just watched The Social Dilemma last night, so I've got a lot of creep, creepy feelings about Google. No uh, like, right, Google, Wikipedia, all these things, we, we don't have the same authority, right? Uh, people don't, we can look up anything. You can hear a better sermon than mine any Sunday, just like Google it, you'll find one. And I think, so there has to be something different that we're offering. So how does the church begin to help even from the very top leaders understand that sometimes we have to let go of the outcome and we have to talk about creating um, spaces where people feel like they can um, grow and still belong and still be a part of um, where we aren't necessarily going after just right belief or just right practice. And that maybe we uh, um, offer the, the truth that we're not sure about everything. Uh, and I think it's going to take helping leaders be comfortable with not seeing their success based on the number of people they have quote unquote discipled. Um, but the number of people that they've helped, you know, define their own practices, uh, the number of people who they have connected to other people, there's just different metrics, um, versus this, like, you know, I, we have this many butts in the pews and, um, you know, I think it's a, it's going to take a while for this re um, reframing. And I, you know, I think it's, you know, I'm only a month out from not being in the system, but it is uh, fascinating to hear uh, outside perspectives, friends here living up here. So many of my friends are um, never churched or de-churched. And the conversations that we have around this stuff is just very fascinating Um, because I think for so long, the church thought the world needed us. Like, how can you be a good person without us? And the truth was like, sometimes they were better than us (laughs) and we have a lot to learn from them. That's so good. Well, Sarah, I've really enjoyed our conversation as we bring it to a close, you know, the church is fragmented as is most of our country, uh, there's different perspectives, there's different views, and and I personally think that's what makes it beautiful. It's what makes it the mosaic, and, and we can really learn from each other. But if the church was going to do something to walk in more unity, mm. that, that John 17 unity, you know, if there was just one thing you would recommend as a first step, what do you think that that would be? Yeah. I, you know, I think the way of um, kind of allowing ourselves to not, um, be in so much fear of different belief. Um, and this is, I'm talking both sides, right? Because there has been, um, an intentional, uh, thing that's happened and we, in 
you know, again, social dilemma, but also just a lot of the reading and studying I've been doing lately um, is it's been intentional that we started othering because you, you can sell more, you can get people more tied in if they believe that you over there are so different than me over here. And you can do that through fear. Um, and so I think if the church can figure out a way to say, wow, you think differently than me and it's okay. Um, and so many studies have been done where people are actually moved closer to each other's beliefs when they both, um, aren't trying to change the other one's belief when they're holding on to theirs and just sitting together and, um, getting curious. So I'd say the, the two things are letting go of fear and getting curious. Um, cause I think what we're going to discover is we have way more in common than we have different. And that doesn't mean you get rid of the differences. You just get curious about them. Um, and I think that is really a way for, it's been a way forward for me, um, to admit that, oh man, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm so curious about what that is. Um, and I, I would hope that for other people too, without a sense of fear that they'll lose themselves. Cause you know, who I am doesn't have to change who you are. Those are great thoughts, Sarah. Thank you. And, and thank course. you so much for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners how to connect with you online if they want to follow up? I would love it. Sure. Um, I'm at Rev Sarah Heath everywhere. Um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Facebook, although I'm terrible at Facebook, I'll be honest. Um, my two podcasts that I'm currently a part of are Making Spaces and then also um, one with the Kevin Garcia called Your Favorite Ants. And that one's live on Thursday nights. Um, so if you ever want to just hear, um, we we do a three part show. We have a section called, did you hear? We have a section called grievances, and then we have a question and opinion section. <laughs> so we just air our grievances in a really funny way. Um, and then, uh, also, yeah, if you're interested in, uh, learning more about what it means to make space, um, I have a consulting firm that will be launching in October. And so my website is not awesome right now, but we're working on it. So that's me. Uh, and that's how you can find me. Also, I'm part of the irreverent media group. And so, um, check out irreverent media. It's, I think it's just irreverent.fm on all things. And you can learn about my crazy siblings. I think of them as siblings who are doing just hysterical and also meaningful work. That's great. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. That wraps up this episode of Dismantle Podcast. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. <laughs>